Stanford University. Don't know where to start, but I'll pick a place. I didn't have any choice in this matter. There was no way I could do anything but teach. I was born into a family that included the uh, headmaster of girls' Latin school in Boston, the chair of the English department at the University of Minnesota, the president of the University of Minnesota. Uh, and so I think genetically this whole thing was completely inevitable and I claim no credit for it. I remember as a, as when I went to graduation from my master's degree in product design here at Stanford in 1972, 71-72, I wouldn't have gone, but my parents insisted, and I understood that it made sense to pay some attention to my parents' priorities there. And there was a fellow there who'd won a teaching award, and in those days, they actually let the winners speak for a couple of minutes from the podium. We were in Frost Amphitheater, and it was a smaller group and easier logistics. And he said exactly the thing I want to say in opening today. He said, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell the dean, don't tell the chair. This job is so much fun, you wouldn't have to pay me, and I'd come to work anyway. So. <laughs> now, my wife's in the audience today, and she may, she may not really want to acknowledge that that's a good plan. Uh, but there is no work in the world. I have the best job possible in the whole world. And it's because of uh, Stanford students. And I have no teaching experience anywhere else, so I'll confine my remarks to Stanford students. They bring intelligence, energy, connection with life, commitment to the enterprise to such an extent that a huge amount of energy is liberated in any sort of interaction. And that's, that's a, a joy and a privilege and an honor. I, um, some of you are here today, so I, I want to acknowledge that at the start. I'm a tool guy, so here's, here's a brazen bit, right? This, this is used generally to put holes in things, kind of that way. And the, the icon here given to me by my daughter uh, many years ago is the notion of teaching by boring a hole in the skull taking a funnel and putting it in the hole, and pouring in roughly a liter of knowledge. Now, the first thing I want to say kind of from a philosophical point of view is, I think it's not about content. I think it's about the experience. I think it's about a student having a deeply immersive experience in which they have to ask their own questions and come to their own answers. And I think long term, that's what sticks. That's what will really influence their life that in 20 years, in five years, in 50 years. That's what will have been most significant. I confess that content is also important. And as somebody who likes to help people create physical things, some technique, some knowledge of materials, some knowledge of tools, some knowledge of physics, all very helpful. But for me, it's mostly about the experience. And, and so my job as a teacher, as some of you sitting here will acknowledge, no doubt, is to get my students into the most trouble I can as quickly as I can, and then help them get out again. <laughs> and, and that kind of intense experience gives the students all sorts of information, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, physical, from which they can create their own meaning. And, and fundamentally, I think that's, if I'm, if I'm doing anything to help teaching, that's what it's about. There is an old notion which is alive and well in universities, which is that the intellect is important and prestigious and superior, and the manual is something that people use to dig ditches and, and, and haul bags of sand. And I think that's absolutely not true. So the Product Realization Lab is a place where students can integrate the intellectual and the manual and it goes beyond the manual, also the olfactory and the kinesthetic and sort of all of the sensory experience of the human apparatus, including the intellectual input, in such a way that I think the outcomes are more powerful than they would be if one were divorced from the other. 
And I'm happy to say there's all kinds of research these days. So I stand before you an unreconstructed shop teacher, but I am going to quote Frank Wilson. And Frank Wilson observed his daughter learning to play the piano and was amazed at the connection between hands and, and sensory perception and cognition that makes all that possible. It is indeed an awesome and complex kind of an activity. I tried it myself for a few years and was never able to succeed. And from that, he began to think more seriously about phylogenetic evolution and what actually came first. And his thought was that when we ceased being arboreal creatures in our pre-homo sapien state and came down on the ground and became bipedal and had to get food some way other than picking fruit from the canopies of trees, it was, became very useful to be able to throw a rock with enough control and accuracy that you could stun an animal, which you could subsequently slaughter and have for dinner, so that you could survive. And his thought was what actually happened was the physical apparatus of the body led the development of the brain. And so brain mass got larger and larger and larger at that point in time. And his argument is, and I will quote him, I would argue that any theory of human intelligence which ignores the interdependence of hand and brain function, the historic origins of that relationship, or the impact of that history on development dynamics in modern humans is grossly misleading and sterile. So I like to think that the PRL is in some small application way a mechanism by which students can be whole students, whole learners, instead of specialists in one area or another. In about 1987 in Italy, research which led to the concept of mirror neurons, which is neurophysiological research, began to be done. And we have now uh, at UCLA Marco Iacobini, professor of School of Medicine UCLA. I, I, thank, uh, I thank my friend John Edelman, who is here today, for, for pointing me in this direction. And it turns out that neurophysiological research shows that a large number of the, of the neurons in, that constitute our brain are not specialized neurons. They aren't just associated with manipulation or with cognition or with sensory experience. They fire at different levels under different combinations of those three kinds of activities. And so the physical evidence is that we are in fact integrated. Our brain and the rest of our body is, and our experience in life is totally integrated. And so that's another thing that I think is important about the product realization lab. Let's do this next. Yeah. So the product realization lab is a collection of people, uh, space, and some tools, but it's the people that are important. And in that location and in that environment, 700 students a year now are creating physically the products of their imagination, their calculation, and their teamwork. We can really wear facilities out in a hurry with 700 students a year prancing through the facility, and we do. <laughs> it is with fire, blacksmiths iron subdue unto fairer form the image of their thought. Michelangelo, about 1500. It's a wonderful bumper sticker for the PRL. Fire is energy. It's not so much the energy of combustion, it's the energy the students bring. It's their commitment, their ego, their life experience that gets embodied in the physical creations that come from the PRL. Iron, well, that's material. And there are lots of materials these days, and iron is only one. Silicon's probably more interesting to most people at this point in time, or gold, or who knows what. Uh, subdue is a word I don't like very much. 
That's what we've been doing as an industrial country for the last 100, 150 years, and we're causing ourselves a lot of trouble by trying to subdue the resource that supports us. It would be better somehow if we could learn to dance gracefully with it. And Stanford's among the leading institutions in, in trying to understand from, a, from a, a research and scholarly point of view how to do that, thank goodness. And I find that my students are typically much more sensitive than I am to those issues, and so usually they're challenging me to be more uh, intelligent about the conversion of Earth resources. And there are only two. There's energy and then and there's physical resources like, like iron oxide, which is about half of what our world is made out of. Unto fairer form, that's the notion of if you can imagine something more wonderful in your life, you can do it. You're a creator, a designer, an engineer a business person, a social scientist. If you can imagine it, typically you can, you can implement it one way or another. Uh, and the image of their thought is, is the notion that it is the imagery, it is what goes on internally, initially, that leads to those changes. I have a colleague who is a, who is a mathematician fundamentally. He would say that his field is kinematics and, and robotics, probably Bernard Roth, Dr. Bernie Roth. And he talks about math in the following way, he says, I really understand it through body motion. I understand math through dance or through kinesthetics. And I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful metaphor for how we all understand most of what we understand, whatever that may be. A small fraction of the 700. The Product Realization Lab makes the following assumption. The students who come to us don't know anything about welding, machining, casting, injection molding, forging. Uh, they may know a little bit about woodwork, probably not. They've probably never taken apart their family car because these days the car is sort of not so tinkerable as it was when I was a youngster. My parents suffered from the fact that nothing in the house ever worked, not the car, not the alarm clock, not the toaster, nothing ever worked. Uh, children these days, unless they grow up doing commercial fishing or maybe on a farm, often don't have that experience. So we make the assumption that our students come to us completely naive but very smart. We put a huge value on safety. So the fact that this young lady is wearing safety glasses and that's a prominent feature of the image is very important to us. Because as wonderful as the PRL is, if there's a serious injury there, there's not enough educational opportunity to compensate for that. So we wanna make really sure that doesn't happen. Tools are important too, and the hammer is probably one of the most sophisticated tools in the world. It has balance, it has weight, it has feel. There are hundreds of different kinds of hammers. They're made with many different sorts of materials and they're capable of creating a huge, almost infinite number of forms. This is incidentally a particularly important model. This was my daughter at age four maybe and uh, she's gone on to be quite a competent human being in life. We're very proud of her. The other thing, <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, are you enjoying these images? <laughs> the other thing that's really central to the PRL is the notion of teamwork. With, <laughs> with 700 students a year trying to use a pretty limited facility, and very often the, the nature of the pedagogy or the curriculum is individual or small team projects, which means there are hundreds of different projects. It also means that the adults on the scene, the teaching faculty and the teaching assistants aren't really experts probably in any of that project work in any of those domains. So we're trying to work with the students rather than lead them to the right answer. So teamwork's really important. Does anybody see anything suspicious about this icon for teamwork? There's an older sibling and a younger sibling. 
And the younger sibling is somewhat closer to the precipice than the older sibling. <laughs> Family lore has it that what's actually going on here is the older brother is getting ready to push the younger sister off the changing table and, and watch her crash to the floor. <laughs> Debbie White did, wanted to do a sword as her ME203 project. And I said, no, too dangerous. What if you stab yourself or the person working next to you while you're working on this? It's not worth the risk. Debbie White was a strong young woman who knew what she wanted to do. And so we negotiated for a while. Rather than going away and pouting, she thought about it. And she came back and said, well, what if I did the handle for the sword and not the sword? And I said, well, what if you bought a theatric sword, which has almost no sharpness and which is definitely not intended to cause trauma? And then you did the handle and the hilt and the guard uh, to suit your concept. And so we, we compromised, and it turned out very well. And her idea was to make the, the guard in the shape of a dove's wing. Now, that's a sort of strange idea. The icon of peace attached to a weapon of war had, had enough tension and interest in it that I thought it was quite an interesting project. And not only that, we don't really know very much about forming and, and brazing brass rod. We don't have a good tool set to do that. So Debbie had to go out on the web, learn something about that, buy tools, bring them into our space, get permission to set them up and use them herself, make many mistakes, maybe many false runs in order to achieve this outcome. And then I did want to point out to you that she's really a very peace-loving young woman. <laughs> this is what she said about her experience. Remember, this looks like a shop course. It looks like a machine shop. Debbie said, and I must say that the most important thing in my ME203 world has been the TAs. They have been amazing. This aspect of the local mostly goes to them. Whenever there was a problem, which turned out to be every time I entered the shop, the TAs were there to help me patch it up. Not only did they teach us how to use the machines, but they also taught us how to think. And that's, I'd like, if I could stop right now and leave you without it, this would have been a fine talk. Um, but of course I can't, because I like the sound of my own voice too much. Here I am referring to the thinking that solves problems, the logical way to run through options and choose the one that would be most effective. For designers, whatever you're designing, a book, a poem, a building, a company, the notion of creating a candidate list of options and then experimenting with them to see what you can learn is a powerful notion. And she expressed that very well. They taught us how to work through a solution rather than obsessing over the problem itself. Take it a little bit at a time. Action item, action item, action item. Don't let it scare you to death. Don't let the magnitude of it scare you to death. And don't let the thought that you've got to be right the first time slow you down because that's very, very, very unlikely. I got better at finding my own solutions. For example, fixturing was hard. For her, fixturing was really hard. How do you, how does one, how would you hold these various separate pieces in the right relative position so that as you did the, the fluid metal joining process called silver brazing, they'd be in the right position when you were finished, especially given that some of these are pretty close together, some of these joining sites, and so that the heating of the next one is likely to melt the preceding one unless you have some clever way to hold everything together. So fixturing was hard, but near the end I was fixturing and brazing without any helpful hints from the TAs. I was able to use this new form of thinking through the problem of fixturing to fix all the joints of my project. And I didn't like my first attempts. I fully respect their resourcefulness, knowledge, and willingness to spend countless hours helping us. So I, I'll make another point a second time, or I'll make 
a point I started with a second time. It isn't the tools, and it isn't the pedagogy particularly, it isn't the curriculum particularly, it's the people, and it's the relationship, typically one-on-one, -on -one, between sometimes two colleagues who are both students in the class, or sometimes the professor and a student, but most often it's a teaching assistant and the student. So teaching assistants are not a poor substitute for real faculty, as is sometimes reported in the news. Teaching assistants, when used appropriately, are a rich treasure, uh, and the students get a lot more from their education because of that the potential for lots of intense one-on-one -on -one activity. Three years ago, a student came into the product realization lab into this entry-level course called ME203, who was on a track to do research in geology. In fact, I think poised on the brink of doing a PhD in geology. And she joined our joint program in design, deciding that design was really her passion, or at least she thought it might be, and she wanted to try it out. And she came into 203 having taken zero engineering courses. So back to my slide of my four-year-old daughter with the safety glasses and the hammer. She came in without sort of credentials to design and build stuff. And her interest was in broccoli. Actually, she claimed, she claimed she had two interests. One was nunchucks, so martial arts. And I'm glad she didn't go down that route because I think it wouldn't have been legal for us to develop those on campus. But, and the other was broccoli. So broccoli's been around for a long time. Some presidents have stated that they don't like broccoli particularly. We grow a lot of it in California, so it's a social political issue as well as a nutrition issue. What about broccoli was troublesome? So Carissa's insight was when you've cooked your, you've steamed your broccoli and you reach into the pan to take the steamed broccoli out, you have several things that aren't ideal. And the first one is you have to reach into the pan. And there may still be steam in there, so this is not a good thing. And the next one is the, the, the basket which does the steaming is made out of metal. And consequently, it retains heat very nicely. It's got a high specific heat compared to some other possible materials. So you reach into the steam and you, and you pick up this very hot thing which is full of energy which, which toasts your fingertips while you're trying to get the broccoli out. Unpleasant. And then, I think not stated in this text, but also true, the other thing is broccoli is a compound flower. There are lots and lots and lots of little tiny flowers. And they fit in the holes in the standard folding leaf steamer in such a way that you rip some of the flowers off when you remove the broccoli from the steamer. So what could be done about that? Well, the first thing is to, is to get some sense of what the idea, what the concept is. Who's the user? What problem you're trying to solve for them? That's in design thinking parlance these days called the point of view. And in ME203, the point of view is very often about the student doing the project, which is a nice place to start design-wise. Well, there's this material, which is not only photogenic, thank you, Jonathan, but also very red and shiny, but also it has low specific heat, uh, very low diffusivity, which means that when you touch it, if it's in a hot environment, it doesn't feel hot, and if it's a cold environment, it doesn't feel cold particularly. It's kind of a nice, neutral, friendly material to touch. And the other wonderful thing about it is, it can be mixed and poured as a fluid, and then chemistry takes over, and the catalyst interacts with the resin, and pretty soon it's an elastomeric, rubbery kind of a solid. That's wonderful for casting. Casting is the act of creating at least two pieces of tooling, which when put together relative to each other, leave a space between them that has the geometry of the part you'd like to make. 
Machining is the other thing we do a lot of in the PRL. That's the act of bringing a cutting tool up to a supposedly immovable workpiece, applying enough stress that you fail the workpiece in shear and remove some of it and what's left is what you wanted. Doesn't work at all with this soft, squishy, rubbery stuff. You have to cast it. If you're going to do a casting project and you're a student who has no engineering courses at all, you are leaping straight into tool and die work which in the terms of the Western Industrial Revolution is kind of the most advanced, most sophisticated sort of trade there is around automobiles, airplanes, jet turbine engines, and so forth. You can't just get a workpiece and, and make somehow or transform it into the object of your interest. You have to build a tool to make that possible. So Carissa starts building tools. Now we don't teach tool and die making. We don't have any documents on the subject. We don't have any TAs who have expertise in that. So she grabs some plastic foam, stuff called wren shape, which is like wood, but it doesn't have the awkward property of wood of grain in it. So it's more, uh, more uh, behaviors, more the same in all directions, and does I think four iterations on a tool. The first one very rough. In fact, there may be. I don't know if I have this slide. Yeah, not really. The first one's very rough and, and less than full scale. And it's awful. There's all kinds of things about it that are terrible. But the material does cure and there's some interest in the color. And then the next one is how do I put holes in it in such a way that when the two halves of the tool come together, the resin doesn't leak between the pin and the hole that's creating the shutoff so that I don't have ugliness around the edges of the holes. And what happens to the geometry of the holes anyway when you project a cylinder off of a hemispherical surface? So at the end of four, test tools came a successful one, including inventing uh, a neat piece of metrology. Here's part, here's part A and here's part B. You put them together, you can't see in there. How do you know what space is actually in there? How can you measure it? You can't get to it to measure it. Uh, so Carissa came up with a very clever sort of graphical way to do that job, which meant that when she was finished, the two sides were the same thickness and the holes were clean around the edges. All sorts of very sophisticated things happened. And uh, by her own, uh, accounting 120 hours over 10 weeks, stainless steel, silicon rubber, cost of materials, total cost of materials, $350. This is a broccoli steamer. <laughs> One broccoli steamer. It looked like it came from Target. I, I hadn't seen a lot of the progress. I walked into final presentations and I looked at that. That must be a prop for whatever the project actually was. It was, it was really fantastic. Well, it turns out <coughs> that she underestimated the cost entirely. The opportunity cost, what are you paying in tuition per unit? <laughs> What's the opportunity cost if you're not out working in the real world while you're here at Stanford? So I suspect that $3,500 is probably a better estimate than $350 for this broccoli steamer. Another course, this one team-based. This one through something called the Hassel Plotner Institute of Design. And they like to work for populations of people who typically are, the family is, is uh, living on a small plot farm. They have a daily income of maybe a dollar, maybe two dollars a day. They are subsistence people. Uh, there's some very beautiful things about that lifestyle and some very challenging things about that lifestyle. So it turns out that students who can travel there, get empathy, recognize an opportunity, can apply relatively straightforward technology and make a huge difference in, in places like that. So this project was done in conjunction with IDE International Development Enterprises in Myanmar, once Burma. And the notion was that a small plot farm, given the weather patterns in this part of Burma, has enough rain to grow one crop of rice. 
and the government says how much rice you must grow, what price you must sell it at, and how much you get to keep to feed your family. So you can't make any money at all growing rice. That's a, if, if you're lucky, that's a wash. If only there were enough water to grow a second crop of maybe flowers or grapefruits or something which you could sell for cash, you could double your family income for the year. That might let your children get a real education. It might let you invest in more agricultural tools and quadruple your income the next time around. As, as you all know as adults, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it's how much discretionary money is in your life that really matters. And so I'd rather have a discretionary dollar than $100,000 that were already committed to the bank or, or somewhere else. So, so that's a very, very powerful thing to do. Turns out that the water level goes down pretty deep outside of the monsoon season. So a suction pump, which already existed, and which was done by Martin Fisher originally, Aprotec in, in Africa, and had been co-opted by IDE and redesigned for that part of the world, is good to 30 feet. And I won't bore you with the physics of that, but there's just not enough air pressure to push the water up any higher than that, no matter how good a vacuum you make. Well, what if the water's down 50 feet or 60 feet or 100 feet? Now what do you do? Well, the answer had been worked out a long time ago by people in, in Wales, for instance, or Cornwall, where you dig deep holes in the ground to get coal out, and the holes fill up with water, and if you want to keep mining, you've got to, you've got to bail them somehow. You've got to have a sump pump. That trouble with that technology is it's way, way too expensive for a family that makes a dollar or two dollars a day. So Dana Ung and Naraj Navakar worked together, and they did a pump which had the following attributes. They actually also had, so there's a shot of a subsistence farm in Burma. And there they are working on the goal. 50 feet deep, 500 gallons an hour, retail price of $50, which means it has to be built for 25 or less to make that possible. And what they did is first they went from metal to plastic, and then they figured a way to take about half the parts out of the device. So what they did was they made the design more elegant. They got the same function for half the parts. Actually, it wasn't half the parts, but it was one very significant subassembly that, that, that they could take out. And at this point in time, that pump is in development. The wonderful thing about this course is most of which happens there, if it's a good idea, ends up being manufactured and distributed in the world. Sometimes we do special projects. A friend of mine, he was a student many years ago. His name was Peter Mondavi, Jr. You know about Robert and Peter Sr. and their feud and the, and, the, you know, and, the, and the marketing of wine in California and all that sort of thing. Maybe, and if you don't, I won't tell you all those stories. Peter is a mild-mannered, smart BS in mechanical engineering when he first came here, then an MS in mechanical engineering shortly thereafter. Then he worked for the family business for a while. He came back and did an MBA. He took about four courses from me along the way. And one day, out of the blue, I get this phone call. Hey, Dave, the Napa Valley Vintners Association holds an auction every year, which raises a lot of money for local schools and youth organizations and below market rate housing and so forth. Uh, and Charles Krug would like to donate 100 pounds, that's three cases, or 27 liters, of wine, of custom blended Cabernet Sauvignon, which is Krug's specialty to the auction, and we think it may bring ten or $15,000 in bid. The trouble with a 100-pound bottle of wine is you can't pick up and pour from it. I don't care how, how enthusiastic you are as a host, it's not going to work. <coughs> well, there's a wine decanting cradle in the world, which is a little thing that helps you mechanically separate the dross from the, or the fines that settle out of the wine in an older red wine from the fluid in such a way that you don't get a crunchy experience when you're drinking a fine wine. 
And so Peter said, we don't want that. We want something innovative, non-traditional. But we want you to pay attention to the heritage of the wine business in California, so we want something very traditional. <laughs> Great. Well, I listened to this and I said, hmm, that's interesting, and went on about my business. This call came early in autumn quarter. Winter quarter, I was teaching a course called Good Products, Bad Products, and Peter agreed to come give a lecture on, on scent and taste, which made a lot of sense. And he brought wine, and he brought lemons and sugar and salt and tablecloths and wine wheels. And it, it was clear that he'd spent, who knows, several days of his time putting this talk together. And it occurred to me that I owed him a favor at that point. So I called him back up said, Peter, tell you what, if I can find three students among our JPD graduates that I think are especially talented, and they want to do this project, we'll, we'll start and we'll do it. Well, I did, and they found four more, so we ended up with a team of seven. And for no credit, no grade, no money, just for the sake of doing the job, we worked on this project. And unlike many projects done in school, the outcome was not allowed to be, wow, that has great potential. Oh, it's only a little bit late. Oh, it went somewhat over budget. No, this had to be under budget, on time, and it had to really work, and it was going to get auctioned off and, and shipped somewhere else in the world. So let's see if I can give you a quick glimpse of that experience. Here's where I start getting in trouble. That looks like a good, good shot. That's a good sign. Sound. I wonder how sound's going to be. This is the notion of prototyping. Quick, dirty, you're not trying to be right yet. And also, digital prototyping is very helpful. This was filmed at about three in the morning. get my facts exactly right, but it's something like $5,000 to buy a ticket to be in the tent so you could bid. <laughs> Women, men, PhD candidates, undergraduates, master's candidates, product design, mechanical engineering, and that's just what happens when a team volunteers at Stanford. You end up with an amazingly diverse team, and it's just plain unavoidable, and it's just plain wonderful. 
So Lawrence Neely has gone on to finish his PhD in the Center for Design Research. Uh, every, everyone there, men, women, early in their academic career, later in their academic career, have gone on to have spectacular uh, futures since then. We were a little disappointed. It only brought in $25,000. <laughs> and when we started doing the accounting on how long we'd spent, what the ac <laughs> and Peter spent some money on materials too. Those weren't complete. So the sort of, um, sort of value added to price or resources expended was not quite what we'd hoped for in the end. And because we were disappointed in that, we decided, the reason there's that video clip, is we decided we would enter the IDSA industrial design competition that year, along with IDEO, who always wins, wins all 50 prizes every year. <laughs> we have no industrial design program. We'd never entered the competition before. We were smart enough to go to IDEO and talk to the person who does their entries, who coordinates their entries and get advice. And darned if we didn't win a medal. We won a silver medal for that project. That were kind of coming completely out of left field. So I hope that the students who were involved in that left that experience instead of feeling frustrated, feeling special and satisfied that their work had really been appreciated. Um, let's see. We also are involved in research projects, and this one is by far the most productive stimulating, exciting in terms of generating community of anything we've ever done in this, in this way. It turns out that if you take your automobile at home and you go out into the garage and lift the hood and take a hacksaw and cut through the steering column so that there's no connection between the steering wheel and the, and the pointing of the front wheels anymore, that's essentially what we've built here. So this is a drive-by wire, wire test bed vehicle. It was motivated by Nissan's desire to explore drive-by-wire, which is to say computer and servo amplifier mediated steering as opposed to mechanically connected steering. And who knows what all of their thoughts were, but one is the same platform can behave in very different ways if you can implement drive-by-wire. Another is the mechanical components get more and more expensive and the electronic components get less and less expensive, so the total cost is likely to be lower at some point in the future. Most important though, is if you have a vehicle which is drive-by-wire, it can sense when things are wrong, and it can make you safe. It can take corrective action. And so it can be a safer automotive exercise than you'd otherwise have. My colleague Chris Gertis received the request to do this work from Nissan, and he very wisely, very courageously, and very surprisingly said, not unless you also fund our ability to design and build a testbed vehicle. If you haven't built it and broken it, you don't understand it. And so his sense for the integrity of the research was that it was important. Well, we're sitting in a conference room much smaller than this one with Nissan senior executives on one side of the table, Dave Beach, Craig Milroy, and Chris Gertis on the other side of the table. And Chris looks at me and he says, can we build a car in a year? I've never built a car. I built a soapbox derby once, <laughs> racer once. I looked at Chris with a perfectly straight face and said, sure, no problem. <laughs> And at that point in time, Craig Milroy, who co-directs the Product Realization Lab, collected some very talented graduate students as research assistants, bought steel, and started cutting and welding steel together. So this is an all-electric vehicle, independently driven rear wheels, two different motors, um, lots of batteries, although even with all those batteries, the burn time is not wonderful, and front wheels that steer independent of one another. You can steer them from an encoder connected to something that looks a lot like a steering wheel. You can steer them by GPS coordinates. And you can program 
I don't know, ramp steer and slalom steer, and you, know, you can program different uh, dance steps uh, for the vehicle and, and have it run that way. Well, what a wonderful opportunity to do something creative in terms of building and designing which leads to new frontiers in, in automobile uh, performance. It's been absolutely fantastic. The other thing that happened, which was a little unexpected, was it changed the direction of the research. So it turns out Chris was pretty wise, because it turns out the data taken from this testbed vehicle on the landing strip at Moffett Naval Airfield and more recently in the parking lot at Shoreline, which we rent every once in a while. Shoreline parking lot's more fun, because it's got gravel all over it. So if you, if you want to lose control and see how the car recovers from a loss of control, it's really easy to do at Shoreline Park. <laughs> it, it turns out that that data has has fed, intellectually, has fed the research enterprise in a way that's very important. And now all of a sudden there are car companies all over the place, most recently Volkswagen, that are very excited about this, this kind of work. So yeah, there's a rakish angle to give you a sense for how fast this is. And there's somebody from Nissan, originally very skeptical now with a Cheshire cat grin on his face. And some details. And then I think I have another clip for you. This isn't actually the most recent clip, but it's the most thoroughly edited clip, so it'll, it'll work well. If you watch closely, you will notice that the graduate student driving at the time of the worst loss of control, and I took off the audio clip Professor Gertis's comments about, we better stop now and go home, but, <laughs> was named Judy Sue. So the woman in the lab is the one who had sort of the most, what, power, most sense of power of anybody present, I think is quite wonderful. Let's see. Well, that probably won't work very well unless we also do this. This will be a much a more violent lateral acceleration, so do a little bit tighter. Okay? Go ahead. It was after that maneuver that outriggers were first discussed for the vehicle. And it turns out that wonderful turbine sound was not part of the design spec. We put a tooth drive belt on the, on the final drive and it makes that kind of siren noise as it winds up, which is, was very helpful for the videographer. probably enough. <laughs> That's a beautiful clip when students from Noe Lozano's Stanford Summer Engineering Academy come in as high school seniors getting ready to start their freshman year and 50 of them come into a classroom and we get to talk about design and engineering at Stanford. That clip is iconic for or recruiting for women doing PhD level research in something like automobiles or airplanes or something that has traditionally been more masculine in its, in its culture. And it's working. There are more and more women in that lab and there are more and more women signing up to do PhDs, some of whom are sitting right here today. So that was, that was fun. Let's see. 
The PRL has connections to the world beyond the PRL. So it has connections to research labs, it has connections to about 26 different courses at Stanford now. It also has alumni who come back and do coaching. A coach is somebody who meets with six or seven students, usually once a week, sometimes more often than that, usually for 10 weeks, and helps them form a community of collegiality such that the design outcomes are more positive than they would have been otherwise. And in fact, it might be worth quoting one of our coaches at this very moment in time. What's, I don't, where, where shall we start? When I see that students in ME203 are having trouble getting started, I imagine that they have no time or anxiety or both. Most of them want to do something special but can't see the path between the idea and the deed accomplished. I can't help with the no time, but I do understand the anxiety. I know what it's like to be afraid of puncturing the beautiful balloon of conceptual purity and keeping company with the messy monsters of material and not knowing. And the point is that a beginning designer especially wants to change the world all at once in a very powerful way. They don't have the tools to do it. And so it's very hard to take that first step into the mess and morass of doing a lousy job, testing, taking a little step, sort of the iterative steps that, that go to actually having a good outcome. So that's coaches. That's kind of the nicest uh, quote from a coach I can think of. This is not a coach. This is Scott Bowie. We also have mentors. So mentors are kind of have a different sort of commitment. Mentors are people who are very busy in their life beyond Stanford, but have time to sort of be gurus or wise elders or consultants to us on a volunteer basis. So Scott Bowie has taken us to China <coughs> so that we can learn something about Asian manufacturing. He supported taking students on the same trip and making video and notes and audio. So we have spent now almost three weeks total in China touring factories. Marlo Dreisigacher is a recent graduate. She's doing biomedical product design. She's our guru of soft, squishy, elastomeric, shiny red rubber casting processes. Kevin Fine was at Agilent for a long time doing the machines that make integrated circuit devices, so he knows about optics and precision engineering and mechanical engineering and electronics. He's recently moved to Greenvolts, so he is our metrology and precision engineering mentor. Bud Delisle ran the IDEO model shop for decades, I don't know, maybe about three decades probably, and is now appointed in the product realization lab as master consulting pattern maker. And Bud Delisle is retired, which makes it possible for him to be with us a lot of time. And what's happened is he's gone from occasionally he shows up and helps a student, usually side by side at the workbench, build patterns for sand casting, to he kind of lives here and he's beginning to act like my manager and I'm beginning to have to you know, <laughs> find resources for him and, and uh, get things organized so that all of his projects can actually happen. So that's a great delight. And one of the things Bud has done is he's taken us in another new direction we now have a partner foundry. So our students, once they've done the conceptual design here, built the pattern work, maybe made some test castings, can go to a foundry which is much more competent than we are and learn from practicing professionals along the way. That foundry, who knows why they love us, but I think it's because the energy the students bring in. I think it's because the students care about what the, what the experts know and bring a lot of energy and joy into their life. And so they just fall all over themselves being helpful. And I think that model is one that we will chase to greater depth. Dan Parker did a BS in mechanical engineering, then he did an MS in aero and astro. When he discovered that the curriculum in aero and astro wasn't going to invite him to design and build and fly an airplane, he grew frustrated, dropped out, went to Los Angeles, and worked on the design and building and flying of helicopters for a couple of years. Came back, finished his degree in aero and astro, 
has worked in various ways since then, most recently on a self-funded three-year sabbatical leave, during which he has been designing, building, and now he's test flying, uh, a single engine, under 400 kilogram airplane, composite structure airplane, with which he hopes to set the world altitude record for, for aircraft in that category. While he's doing all that, he says, he comes into my office one day, he says, Dave, I really like the PRL, but you never taught us how to build airplanes. You don't, you don't have the right set of tools. You're a bad guy. And I've just come from Aero and Astro, and if you're not careful, I'm going to devote all of my volunteer services to my friends in Aero and Astro. I said, stop, Dan, what do you want? We'll buy it. We'll do anything. <laughs> you can help. So he started, first he gave us field trips to his studio in, in uh, Menlo Park, uh, and then he started having workshops where we could lay up composite structures in a sort of structured recipe cookbook-like way. And then he started coaching projects with students actually making their own design uh, composite projects. And so he has, he's, he's our youngest mentor at this point in time, I think, and he's our composites guru. Well, Ann Fletcher maybe. So investment casting uh, came to us because medical products often want to be very small in scale and lost wax casting or investment casting is a good way to do that. And that has spawned quite an activity with Mandy Knox. Do you know, does anybody know Red Start Design? I know some of you do know Red Start Design. Turns out one of our graduates, actually two of them, Mandy Knox and Sarah Shaughnessy, are in business in San Francisco designing and manufacturing jewelry. And the company name is Red Start Design. And they also teach a class in metalsmithing here once a year, and they're available to us anytime we have investment casting technology issues. There's a bicycle building class, Ryan Connolly. That's a younger Ryan Connolly than he is today. That's maybe a five-year-old image. Ryan Connolly teaches the design and fabrication of bicycle frames, and then components are bought. And at the end of 10 weeks, a student has a custom-built, totally functional bicycle to ride off into the sunset. And this whole interest in bicycles spawned Ross Evans to go off in a kind of different direction. Ross Evans had the idea that a bicycle could be more like a pickup truck and less like a sports car. And so, you know, what could you do to enhance this? So he started a, a company called ExtraCycle. And ExtraCycle has kind of two markets. One of them's here in places like San Francisco, where, especially with the price of gasoline and the state of the economy, a parent can take the bicycle, a child or two, go to the grocery store, load up on a week's worth of groceries, and get all that back again without spending any money on gasoline, get a little cardiovascular stimulation in the process, even dads. And then in the, in the bottom of the pyramid parts of the world, people carry their chickens and their cooking oil and their whole family and whatever they're going to carry from one place to another is probably carried by bicycle. So the notion of cargo bicycles for the bottom of the pyramid portion of the world is important. And since, since we were talking about altruistic things, how wonderful the, the, the public service of our students is, here's an F-16. It's being flown by a guy named Kirk Hawkins. And Kirk Hawkins really only cares about one thing in life, how exhilarating can his day be? He, he loves to take physical risks, he loves to go very fast, he loves to climb close formation. In fact, I got a phone call one day which said, Dave, come on out of your office and, and go stand in the middle of this inner quad at Stanford University. So I did, here comes an F-16. <laughs> so we got a spectacular flyby, and when Kirk got back to his home base, they demoted him. <laughs> so, not one neighbor, but, but hundreds of neighbors called to complain. So he got himself in big trouble that day. So after, after he, well, so I'll tell you another little story about Kirk. 
during Christmas vacation, maybe it was spring, I don't know, he was somewhere, uh, Yellowstone area, and they were riding around on, on snowmobiles. And the snowmobile that was in front of him in line on this trail conked out. So he gets out of his snowmobile and starts working on it, and I guess the engine must have been in the back. And somehow the snowmobile that he'd been in started running again, and so his legs were crushed between the two snowmobiles. So he had four broken bones. Well, he wanted to go to flight school. And the rule is you can't go to flight school if you've got hardware in your body. So no pins, no staples, no straps, no screws. So how do you go about, you're probably physicians here, how do you go about setting the legs when you're not allowed to leave any metal in there? And what they did is they put pins in above and below each bone and each break, and then they put rubber bands between the pins on the outside of the body. So Kirk's walking around with this kind of tensegrity structure on both legs, and eventually he does go to flight school and he graduates first in his class in flight school. And then he decides he wishes his legs were actually straight, so he goes back to a hospital and has them rebroken and reset, this time with all the hardware available. And now he is the founder, along with Steen Strand, of Icon Aircraft. So this is totally a frivolous, expensive toy for people who love exhilaration and have a lot of money. I can't make any bottom of the pyramid claims for this one. But it's very cool because it has folding wings, which means it can go on a trailer, which means it can be like a water ski boat in your life. So it can live in your garage, you go to the water, you launch it, you unfold the wings. It's a two-seater side by side. It's in a new category that the FAA declared a couple of years ago, light sport aircraft. And it goes faster than ultralights are allowed to go. It has less stringent pilot training requirements, Lord help us and save us all, than <laughs> standard commercial aviation. Uh, and it has safety features that kind of bring that into a sensible domain, most important of which is if something goes wrong, the whole plane parachutes instead of the pilot and passenger having to get out and parachute individually. So there is one of these during, doing flight testing, and there are two of them running around the world with folding wings but no other functionality except they look just exquisite. They are gorgeous. And there are hundreds of orders, and as far as I know, there's no manufacturing infrastructure at all yet. So. <laughs> and Tesla Motors is, is a legend in this area, and you, you already probably have heard a lot about Tesla Motors. Of their technical staff, 37 of our graduates at Stanford uh, have been, until recently, there have been some reorganizations, some, some layoffs, but 37 have been working for Tesla. Tesla started life, in my view, when J.B. Straubel, an undergraduate in mechanical engineering, took ME203. And J.B. went out and he bought an old golf cart for 50 bucks. And he unbolted the engine and took it to his dorm room, which was more like a laboratory and, and, and test bench kind of area. And he stripped off the field windings and put on much heavier gauge wire, which means a lot more current would go through, which means you get a lot more torque out of the motor. And the nice thing about DC series, series 1 motors is you get maximum torque when they just start at zero angular velocity. So the experience of leaving the line is a lot of fun in an electrical vehicle. <laughs> so this was fine except that there was too much heat generated by all that current running through these new conductors. And so things wanted to melt. <coughs> Undeterred, JB went out and got some copper tubing and he wound some copper tubing around the field coils and ran chill water through that to keep the heat under control. This was working just great on the bench. He comes to final presentation day, which is like a gala affair. Hundreds of people attend, and it's, it's a little bit like the opening of a, of a museum, maybe, or a corner of Burning Man or something like that. And he bolts the, bolts the motor, the newly engineered motor, back to the $50 golf cart. And he sits in the seat, 
and he taps the control, and the torque is so high it just rips the powertrain completely apart. The car never moves. <laughs> it just sits there making terrible <laughs> material failure noises. Well, JB is the lead engineer for Tesla Motors, right? <laughs> he's a guy who, he's not trying to save the world, although you can be very environmentally responsible with, a, with an electric vehicle, for sure. By the numbers, it's very impressive but you can have a ball doing it. You can go zero to 60 miles an hour in less than four seconds. That's like a really hot Corvette or a really hot Porsche. It's very hard to maintain control, contact control with a, with a steering wheel because you're thrown back so hard away from it by the acceleration. One day I had the great fun of driving with Jason Mendez, another Stanford graduate working for Tesla, on Middlefield Road going north in Redwood City. You didn't hear this from me. I, w I won't admit it in court, and, and I'm sure it's not being recorded, so this is safe. <laughs> We're sitting at a traffic light, and there's some V8 going rumble, 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 with a top down to our right, and we're in a convertible too. It's a roadster, and we're making no noise at all. And Jason kind of looks, and the driver of the other car kind of looks back, <laughs> and, and there's this knowing exchange of glances. The light changes. Rum! Well, in about two blocks, I look around, and all that noise is way behind us. <laughs> We've made absolutely no noise at all. At least you certainly couldn't hear it over the other car. The stealth hot rod roadster. It's an exhilarating ride. If you, if you haven't gone and taken a test ride in a Tesla, you might want to do that. I think, Michelle, wh I bet we're pushing the limits. I'm not even close to finished. I knew this would happen. Uh, <laughs> it always does. Maybe a few questions would be, would be a good idea, or how would you like to handle this? Probably one or two questions. One or two questions, okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Friendly questions, of course. <laughs> Please. Do you notice any difference in, in how this type of thinking is uh, different for different um, car companies? You were talking about Japan. How would they Detroit compare with that? How would you? I have good friends in some Detroit companies, notably Ford. So I know a little bit about how Ford operates. I have no contacts whatsoever in Japanese automobile companies, except for Numi, which is a joint GM Toyota venture in the East Bay. So I'm not well qualified to comment. But I will anyway, of course. <laughs> the automobile industry makes such huge investments in their production facilities that to make a mistake is outrageously expensive and they dare not make mistakes. And so we sometimes look at automobile companies and say, gosh, they're conservative. Why don't they get a clue? Why don't they, why don't they get more innovative? Why don't they behave more boldly and more responsibly? And I think we're wrong to say that. I think you want the Tesla Motors of the world to do that and then get absorbed by the more mature companies as, a, as an innovative mechanism. Tesla Motors, on the other hand, and I do know quite a bit about that one, has had a certain arrogance about how much more innovative and smarter they are than GM. And that hasn't served them well either. <laughs> that, is, that has led to some trouble. So my view is that the automobile companies get unduly criticized for being conservative. Please. Do you think the merging our awareness and concern for climate change should uh, perhaps nudge fantastic programs like your encourage the fabulous energy of the students and so forth to more of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, sort of roughly that way instead of maybe a uh, broccoli uh, steamer. Absolutely. 
So let me run to the final shot, which is green volts. Absolutely, and it's not a nudge, the overwhelming energy of students is in this direction. I would say 20 years ago, it was common knowledge that if you, if you were courageous, you might not go to work for Hewlett Packard and do computers, but that's kind of mostly what, it, or Apple, that's what everybody was doing. And then 10 years ago, you might not do a medical products company, because that's what everybody was doing. And now what I see, both recent graduates and alumni from decades ago, are all flocking to alternative energy and sustainable engineering projects, well supported by the local venture capital community, which is very exciting, well supported by the Woods Institute and other excellent, uh, Green Dorm, Gillmasters, other excellent organizations on campus. So I don't apologize for the broccoli steamer at all. I think food's a good thing. Uh, and I think you would be very pleased at the amount of energy and activity uh, focused on sustainable engineering. Even my a little tiny new organization called the Product Realization Network has three major activities, the most significant of which is sustainable manufacturing techniques. And Bob Carlson and, uh, and um, Dariush uh, and several graduate students are all working together there. If you visit NUMI, if you visit Toyota, a, a, a sort of General Motors but mostly Toyota partnership, they are doing amazing things as regards the environment and manufacturing. One example, then I'll quit. And that is that an injection molding machine is a big press that makes molded plastic parts. It makes them quickly. It makes them productively. There's a new control strategy, which Toyota has created out of their own research labs and implemented in NUMI, which allows for half the size of machine, half the mass. Guess what? You don't need as much heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. You don't need as much real estate. You don't need as much power input to the machine. It's a huge saving. So the notion, the simple-minded notion of just shrinking the scale without losing capacity of manufacturing processes is, is uh, gaining a lot of traction in the research world right now. Well, they, we Thanks, know Michelle. we do have lots more to share, but thank I you do. for what you have. <laughs> for more, please visit us at stanford.edu.